Good morning. Welcome home. My name is Daniel. I get the opportunity of teaching uh, God's Word today, uh, and I hope you're having a good uh, Memorial Day weekend, whatever you may have planned. We're in week six of a series in the book of Revelation called Revelation. And if it's your very first time, I want to say a few things right here on the jump out of the gate. Uh, the first thing is, you may feel like if it's your first time, you haven't been watching online or coming to one of our services, you're like, man, I've missed so much. And you're right, we've covered a lot of content thus far, but you can go back and you know, do your homework over this long you know, holiday break. You don't have to go to work tomorrow, possibly. You could catch up on you know, hours of sermons if you wanted to, but they're there if you, if you want them on our YouTube channel, uh, Spotify, podcasts, all those kind of ways you can find those. And we know that the book of Revelation can be super confusing or hard to grasp even it's hard to teach through, uh, but we've been answering questions that have come up for you uh, on our podcast that releases every Tuesday called A Little Better. You can submit questions still on iwant.info, and there's some other study guides uh, there along with it if you would like to study the book for yourself along with us in this teaching uh, series. Uh, the second thing I want to say out of the gate, if it's your first time, is I'm sorry. Like, you, you came on a week that it's going to get weird, okay? Um, and, and it's not going to get weird. I'm not, I don't have anything weird planned, um, but it's, the text that we're in this morning uses a lot of super poetic imagery and language, metaphor, simile, hyperbole, all those things to, to really, um, I would say, excite your spirit or stir up your spirit to try to teach you things that the other parts of Scripture have already taught us, but just in this poetic uh, metaphorical way. We, we learned in week one in this series that Revelation is apocalyptic literature, meaning it uses language and imagery to stir up our spirit, I would say. It uses that to excite us, to teach us things in a poetic way that the Bible and other places have already uh, taught us. Uh, and, the, and the third thing I want to tell you, if you're, if you're new and maybe it's your first time, is, is in light of what we teach today, we're not a cult, Okay. <laughs> And I know what you're thinking out of the gate. You're like, Daniel, that's exactly what somebody in a cult would say. Uh, but like, like I said, it's, it's poetic imagery. And, and one of the things we're going to get to later on uh, this morning is that there's, the text says in Revelation 12, that there's an enormous red dragon. Okay? And you're thinking if you're not a follower of Jesus, like these people actually think there's an enormous red dragon out to get them? Well, the answer is, is no in the sense that is there a literal red dragon out there to devour Christians, like gobble them up like in Shrek or something? Like, no, that's not the case. But we do believe as followers of Jesus in a God who is active in this world. We, we prayed that prayer, not just throwing it out there, oh God, oh God, I need you, but we believe that. We believe that there is a good God who is active and involved in our world. And the same way that there's a good God active and involved in our world, there is an enemy that is active and involved in our world. And in this passage, he's described as an enormous red dragon. So yes, we do believe that, but not in the sense that he's literally a red dragon that you would maybe see in a cartoon or something drawn like that. And so, uh, which you may land in the spot of like, okay, you're not a cult, but this is still weird. And I would definitely agree with you that this passage is weird. It reminds me of a time when I was like 10 years old. I grew up in church mainly my whole life. And uh, during the singing portion, I explicitly remember this memory of I was uh, standing uh, in, in rows similar to like most of you are, unless you're watching in the comfort of your home or at the lake, wherever you may be. Um, and we were in the singing portion. I remember this time where I really listened to the words of a song that we sang on a regular basis. Have you ever had this moment? Like you've 
actually heard the words for the very first time. Like you paid attention for a change. Uh, And I remember this time for me, like I hadn't been following Jesus. I think in this time period, it was right when I was on the edge of faith of asking some big questions about who God was and what he wanted from me and uh, who I was in light of him, kind of all these questions like that. And we sang this song. The title of the song is called Power in the Blood. Okay, power in the blood. And I, I just divided our rooms across all of our locations. Half of you are thinking, man, that's my song. Like, I remember when we used to sing that growing up, and others of you are thinking, that's a weird title. Like, that's just strange, man. Power in blood, that's weird. Sounds like a cult. I'm, I'm getting unconvinced now. All right, so, but anyways, the, the line that jumped out at me, like jumped off the page at me, uh, off the screen, off the sheet, I don't remember if I was holding the hymnal or watching it on the screen, right? Uh, but it goes like this. There's power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the lamb. Now, I divided the room again. Half of you were like, man, I wish you would have sang it. And then you would have wished if I did sing it, man, I wish you wouldn't have sang it. So, um, so you're welcome. Um, but in, in my 10-year-old brain, I was sitting there thinking, I was like, what? There's power in blood, specifically in lamb's blood, more specifically in a specifics lamb's blood. I had a whole list of questions at this point. Like, where's this lamb? How are we getting his blood? Are we drawing it? Do we kill him? Like, and how does that power? Do I have to drink it? Well, what are we doing with this blood? It's very strange to me. But in light of that, that song, just like the book of Revelation, is using poetic language to excite or stir up our spirit in ways that just plain out saying it maybe wouldn't. Because I learned later on that, man, that lamb is its symbolic imagery to talk about Jesus in light of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he gave his life in my place. There is power in his blood of what he did on my behalf. But just saying it, maybe like, oh yeah, that's cool. But then singing it, it puts it on a whole different level. And so this morning, this passage does similar things for us. I want to remind you where we're at in the book of Revelation. You'll see an outline behind me on the screen. This morning, we're at chapters 12 through 14. So if you have a Bible or the Northridge app, pull out your notes, get ready, buckle up. We're about to dive in. This is a section that is an interlude between the seven trumpets of judgment, which we taught last week, and the seven bowls, which we'll teach next week. And I know what you're thinking, because you're thinking the exact same thing I'm thinking. I've never heard or said the word interlude more in the past couple of weeks than I have uh, in my entire life. And we see this as an interlude because it's, it's kind of lifting us out and teaching us something like, uh, that we can apply to our lives, just like all these other sections in Revelation. Uh, we left off last week um, in Revelation chapter 11, where we saw heaven coming to earth The temple of God was opened up. The Ark of the Covenant was there inside of the temple. And this morning, like the movie Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, we're going into the Ark of the Covenant. But we're not just going in to be before the Ark or around the Ark, kind of like we were in the throne room in week three. We're going behind the scenes, okay? We're going behind the Ark or behind the throne to see some crazy cosmic events. And the way that this passage teaches us about these events is through some signs. It's the word that's specifically used. Uh, And the big idea today that we're going to see is we're going to see these two kingdoms at war with each other, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. And we're going to be taught this, that it's almost as if throughout history, we've seen these two kingdoms always being at odds. But I want to give you a definition for a sign. A sign, it's there in your notes, is always pointing to something 
bigger. And I'll point out where we get to and which ones are signs. But in light of the word sign, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any number of times, you've probably know that this phrase has been thrown around a lot. A sign of the times. A sign of the times. There's even been books written with that title or even that as the subtitle of what are the signs of the time. And this passage in Revelation chapters 12 and 13, I believe aren't talking about a specific unit of time. The way that Revelation, you should think about time in general is not this linear scope of as we've moved through history. Because if you attempted to isolate when did this event happen on the timeline of history, you would be left confused. And I think that's part of the point because what Revelation in this part is talking about is not a specific era of history or future, past, present. It's talking about types of times that we've seen throughout history that you're going to be left thinking, oh, that happened. Or is that happening? Or will that happen? And you'd be like, yes, is the right answer. And so let's stop delaying. Let's dive into Revelation 12.1 and see how this unfolds. So it says this, Revelation 12.1, a great sign, there's that word, appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So there it is. The first sign is the woman. And there in your notes, you can write down the woman represents Mary, Israel, and the church. And so the easiest reading of this woman, as you looked at the descriptors of her and even who she gives birth to, is to think, oh, this is Mary, because the the child is Jesus. We haven't got to that yet, but the child is, is Jesus. So obviously, this passage of scripture is talking about Mary. Well, yes, but not only Mary, because remember, a sign is pointing to something bigger. Because theologically, we shouldn't just say that it was Mary that brought Jesus into the world, but we should also say it was Israel. It was Israel that was bringing Jesus into the world because all throughout our Old Testament, we see different passages of scripture through the prophets and the Psalms talking about the nation of Israel as a pregnant woman. I know that's hard for us to like think, how would you think of a nation as a pregnant woman? Well, let's look at Isaiah 66, 7 together. It says this, before she, talking about the nation of Israel, goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 26 to be specific, there's a few verses there talking about the nation of Israel as a pregnant woman and, and says that she can't save herself, talking about the nation, that she can't save herself, that she needs salvation, but she can't provide it for herself. But it will be someone who comes from her referencing Jesus. So we see that this woman who's in heaven in Revelation chapter 12 is a representative. Oh yeah, that's Mary because she gave birth to Jesus, but also that's Israel. And then Third, I I included in there the church because what we see happens to this woman is after she gives birth, after all these things happen, God protects her in the wilderness. Throughout history, we see God doing this to his bride, to his church, protecting her all throughout history. You could even back up earlier in the book of Genesis and say that this woman is representative of Eve because of the prophecy about Jesus and Satan in the book of Genesis chapter three, that is this woman Eve Yes, but she isn't exclusively Eve. Is this woman Israel? 
Yes, but she isn't exclusively Israel. Is this woman Mary? Yes, but she isn't exclusively Mary. You get the point. She is, is this woman the church? Yes, but she is not exclusively the church because a sign is pointing to something bigger. In Hebrew thought, one way to see prophecy was to see it in patterns, to see it happening over and over and over and over again. We would say it like this, history repeats itself. And then in the description of this woman, we see it taken straight from Genesis chapter 37 about the dream that Joseph had. And all throughout the Bible, this pattern is emerging of God creating a people for himself. And the kingdom of God could be given this simple definition, the people of God in a specific place under his rule. And then this woman in Revelation 12, she gives birth and she gives birth to a son. Verse five, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. I've already told you who this child is. The male child represents Jesus. The male child represents Jesus. The descriptors to Jesus that we see here are the exact ones cited by Paul in Acts 13, and he cites Psalm chapter 2. So we see this son is Jesus, and he is snatched up to God. Now, the question you may have in your mind is, what in the world does that mean? He was snatched up to God because they're in heaven. Remember, they're in heaven is the location that John's seeing this. How could he be snatched up even further? Like, what's past heaven? Like, bigger heaven? I, I don't know. Like, and so what, what I would explain this as is simply, this isn't your mama's Christmas story, okay? It's the Christmas story, though. And you see it like this in just a very abbreviated version. Think about Matthew chapter 2, the nativity scene. It's so beautiful. There's, there's a pregnant woman. Her name's Mary. Well, we've already seen this. And there's these three wise men that show up to the king of Israel, Herod. And they tell him, a new king has arrived on the scene. And he said, really? Tell me about this. And as he gets information, he takes the information, what we know today is in history as the slaughter of the innocents, that he attempts to kill that king by killing all the baby boys that are in his nation under the age of two. But... God whisked the family away to Egypt to protect them. And this is exactly what we see happening in Revelation chapter 12. And you say, well, wait, Daniel, he was snatched up. And you're right, he was snatched up. 33 years later, after Jesus lived a perfect life, gave his life as our place, as our sacrifice on the cross, buried in a tomb, rose again, and then after he appeared to people, he was snatched up, or as Acts chapter one says, he ascended back to God. So John gives us this quick symbol analogy of explaining years and years of history in this simple definition. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And that's exactly where Jesus reigns today, on the throne. The woman is protected in verse 6 of Revelation 12, uh, the exact number of days as the prophets prophesy in chapter 11. And throughout this, we see this devil expressing himself through those world leaders in Jesus's time, that he's explaining things in a spiritual way. But why, why do I keep talking about the devil? And I, earlier I mentioned in the message, a dragon. Well, let's read about this dragon in verse nine of Revelation 12. The great dragon was hurled down. The, that word in the original language could be thrown out, cast out, or my favorite, bounced out. All right. He was bounced out. The devil was bounced out of heaven. All right. Some of us may have been bounced out of other places, but we won't talk about that, okay? All right, so here we go. 
That ancient serpent was hurled down. He was bounced out. That ancient serpent called devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He's called the second sign in verse three, uh, but we just read verse nine. So that second sign, the dragon represents the devil. Nobody's guessing about who this guy is because the scriptures tell us exactly this very thing. And we're told that he has seven heads and the number seven we know means fullness or completeness. Um, And his authority that he has from the head meaning the symbol of authority is complete, yet it is borrowed. And each one of those heads have 10 horns. In the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, we're told that horns represent kings of the earth. And there's a link between the number of kings that the dragon has and human rulers on this earth. But the point is not to talk about the limitations of this dragon's rule, but it's more to talk about the link between human empires and systems and leaders who turn their back on God and pursue their own rule and trying to set up their own kingdom without God at the center. Because if you would have given this uh, book to the people in the book of Exodus, uh, they would say, I know who the dragon is. It's Pharaoh. He's putting us in slavery. If you would have given this book to and talk about a dragon to the people in Jesus' day, they're like, I know who this is talking about. This is talking about Herod. He just slaughtered thousands of baby boys. He is obviously demonic. He's obviously a terrible leader and ruler. If you would have given this to the original audience in the book of Revelation, some of them may say, I know who this is. This is Nero. He was dipping Christians in oil and, and lighting them on fire as lampstands for the city. Or, or, there, or other Christians would be like, I know who this is. This is Domitian. He's intentionally persecuting us, taking away our businesses, taking away our families, killing some of us. I know who this is. And you ask other Christians across the world who have faced persecution, they would think, I know who this is. But the point isn't to link it to direct human leaders. It's to say that any human leader is a manifestation of a dragon, is a manifestation of evil when they try to set up their own empire to worship themselves. And these two signs of a woman and a dragon, if you know the first three chapters of your Bible, should jump back to Genesis 3. We're going to read it together. Genesis 3.15, God looking at the serpent who led them astray, says this, and I will put enmity, strife, conflict, war between you, which is the serpent, and the woman. Here we have a woman and a serpent. Revelation 12, we have a woman and a dragon. Between your offspring and hers, he, singular, talking about Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike or bruise his heel. That he looks at the serpent and says, your offspring, serpent, as you lead the whole world astray, Revelation 12, 9. And he has, hasn't he? Many people, he has led them astray to pursue evil. It would be tone deaf of me not to make the cultural ties to Buffalo shooting, Texas shooting, and many other travesties across our world in our own lifetimes. The devil, the serpent, that ancient dragon is leading the world astray into evil. Yet the woman's offspring, who are mentioned in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, is who the devil attacks. Let's read it together. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Next fill in the blank there is the offspring of the woman are followers of Jesus. 
And the question that you may be asking is, why is this dragon so ticked off? Why is he enraged at the woman? Why? It's because he's been defeated. He's been defeated by Michael in verse 7 of chapter 12. The next fill in the blank is the angel Michael is the protector of God's people. He's mentioned there in chapter 12 of Revelation and in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 as the protector of God's people. And Michael and his angels wage war against the dragon and his angels. And Michael and his angels overtake the dragon and his angels. And when he's defeated, that's when he gets bounced out of heaven. He gets bounced out of heaven, sent to earth, and he begins his great schemes. And you're going to see in two verses his schemes. He starts scheming because he knows his time is short. He has a strategy. Satan, the enemy, has a strategy against the followers of Jesus, the people of God, and ultimately the people of the whole world. Let's look at verse 9 again together. We've already read it multiple times, but that great dragon was hurled down the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, was hurled down he and his angels with him. The first plan is deceit. The first plan or scheme of attack of the dragon is deceit. You can write it down there in your notes. Jesus would call this in John chapter eight that the devil is the father of lies, that he uses lies as his first plan of attack. The second one you see in that very next verse, verse 10. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. The second plan of attack is accusation. We have deceit and accusation. And as the devil is defeated in in heaven, it's great for heaven, terrible for earth. Because he shifts his focus from heaven to earth. But I want to note that deceit and accusation in your life, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, only has power over you when it's agreed upon. But if you are a follower of Jesus, against that deceit and accusation, you have an advocate. I don't have time to unflesh this out all the way, that you have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who took your place, who gives you a new identity in him. And we don't have time to flesh that out though. So, but you should, you should dig into this more, that Jesus is your advocate against the enemy. But these lies... These accusations only have power over you when you agree upon them as truth for you. And yet our only source is God's word for who we are and who he declares himself to be and who we are in him. And the two biggest lies that I want to take it all the way down to the root is, is when you believe the lie that number one, I don't know how to read my Bible. I don't know how, it's hard, it's difficult, it has so many connections and uses this language sometimes, it's hard for me to understand. I don't, I'm going to leave that to the pros like Drew and Nate and, and Daniel, they can, they can teach me what it's actually saying there. Or you, you believe another lie that, well, I don't know how to pray, I, I don't know how to pray, I don't know how to read my Bible, let's turn on another episode of Netflix. And I, I don't say that to guilt trip you. I say that to encourage you that your advocate and your father desires to hear from you and be with you in an undistracted, unhurried space. Because if you know how to talk, you know how to pray. And it may be difficult, but you can read your Bible. It may be difficult, but you can do it. And that's the way you attack these first two schemes. And the third scheme is death. You see it all throughout Revelation 12 and 13 that his plan is to kill. 
And we see his plan unfolding through two other figures. Beast number one, we see in chapter 13, verse one, who is the beast out of the sea representing the Antichrist. And we see the sea in the ancient world seen as the source or the place of evil. Um, The beast is also told that he's coming from the abyss in chapter 11. So we're, we're, we're to imagine in our minds that this is not a man of God. He is from the source of evil. He is from the abyss. He's not a man of God. A first century reader would have read this and thought, oh, that's Rome and that's Caesar. They're evil. They're coming to conquer us. But ultimately, I don't want you to miss that the way that the devil kills or the Antichrist kills in this passage is by not taking your life, but getting your worship. Getting your worship. He, he desires people to worship the first beast. And he gets you to do that by taking your eyes off of Jesus and putting it onto that Antichrist. Look at 1 John 4, 3, another letter from John who wrote Revelation. He says this, Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus, it does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Already in the world. Do I need to say it again? Already in the world. That spirit leads people off of Jesus and on to himself. So any leader, any system, that points people away from Jesus onto themselves, John would look at that and say, Antichrist, spirit of the Antichrist. And this spirit gets complicated, or this person, this figure, this beast is complicated to understand because he is strictly described as animal descriptions in chapter 13. So the question may be like, okay, what kind of beast is this? Well, it's it's not a beast. It's a man. And we know this because of later on, earlier in Revelation, we get Revelation 6, 2, where he is the rider on the white horse who is deceptive and uh, is a conqueror bent on conquest. He is bloodthirsty. And then we're also told to have wisdom about him because Revelation 13, 18 says, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So the reason that John gives strictly animal descriptions to this beast is to show us that this is not a man of God. This is a man who is a wild animal empowered by hell under the control of Satan himself. And he is not alone. Look at verses 11 and 12. The second beast out of the earth is the one who promotes the Antichrist. He uses his power and authority strictly to push people to the first beast. And this beast is honestly way less important than the first one, but he nonetheless completes the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity, where you have the dragon, who is the devil himself, acting like the father in heaven. He's kind of removed, but he's involved. He's standing on the seashore. He's removed, but he's involved. The second beast is the beast from the sea, the Antichrist. He tries to be God the Son and say, worship me. And then the beast from the earth tries to be God, the Holy Spirit, who says, worship him. So we have the dragon trying to be the father, the beast from the sea trying to be the son who deserves worship, and the beast from the earth trying to be the Holy Spirit, pointing people to the first. And a quick point of reference here is this may terrify you, but I also want you to know that you don't fight these beasts by studying them. You don't fight these beasts by watching the news. You don't fight these beasts from... Diving into social media, trying to figure out, all right, who's trying to get worship? I need to figure them out. I need to get this. 
No, you worship, you, you fight these beasts by worshiping the real one, by worshiping the real thing, which is Jesus. Remember week two of this series, we talked about fixing our focus before we ever dived in this book. We got to fix our focus on Jesus, the only one who deserves our worship. Then in week three, we talked about the throne room of God. He who sits on the throne is the one who deserves our worship. And yet, this is all still a little scary. I'm not going to downplay it at all. That's why John tells us in verse 10 of chapter 13, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Because this unholy trinity is trying to create a system to say, worship us, not the real thing. And this number is, we recall, is the number of a man because they can't have the number of God who is the perfect number if we would give that number 777. They gotta settle for 666. And the question we all wanna know is, what does it mean? Where is that number? How can I make sure I don't have it? And people all throughout history have trying to been guessing at, well, who is this number? You know, creating algorithms between letters and alphabets and saying, oh, it spells this. And with every rise in modern Western world and technology, we've said, that's the mark of the beast. When social security numbers came out, Christians started freaking out. They're like, that's the mark. When debit card pins came out, just like, you know, 15 years ago or so, they were like, that's the mark. COVID-19, that's the mark. COVID-19 vaccine, that's the mark. And the list goes on. We could go on and on and on. And And it's not because Christians are ignorant or uninformed. It's because they've read this passage and misunderstood it. And let's read verse 16 of chapter 13. It, the second beast, also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Verse 17. So that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. The thing I want to highlight here is some of you, your, your antennas are going up because you're like, I haven't read this before. Now I really think some of those things may be the mark of the beast that you listed off. But the thing that you need to highlight is here is it's the number of his name, not yours. It's, it's not an individual identifier. It's the identifier that says I'm with him. That mark is a mark that is given with the onset of a clear choice. Before the mark is given earlier in chapter 13, we say that these people, we see that these people have to make a choice to worship the beast, then they get the mark. When they make that decision to worship the beast, then they get the mark, which would imply that they have turned away from Jesus, trading an eternal life for a temporary pleasure, taking temporary pleasure in exchange for an eternal death. And that mark is a clear choice that happens before it because the mark is a symbol of a relationship. It's almost in our modern day equivalent of like a bumper sticker, right? Think of your bumper stickers on your car you put that some people drive around. They're like, oh, they're used to identify I'm with this party or I support this organization. It's you identifying with the larger group that's pointing in a direction. That's what this mark is like. And uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner says it like this, talking about the mark. He says, John does not intend to point us to any particular individual here. Rather, the kingdom of the beast is a human kingdom, an evil kingdom, instead of a divine one. The nature of humanity, apart from God, is demonic. The kingdom of the beast promises life 
and prosperity, but brings death, misery, and devastation. So that we see this mark is one that you said, I'm worshiping the beast. I'm worshiping the idol. I'm worshiping not Jesus. I'm worshiping this other thing. But also earlier in the New Testament, there's another or a different kind of mark that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter one. Let's read it together. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. Read it together. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. We see here with the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13 that there is a clear choice, even though it may not be an easy choice. That there is a clear choice, even though it may not be an easy choice. Because those who reject the mark of the beast and take the mark of the lamb, if you want to call it like that, or the mark of the Holy Spirit, the seal, verse 15, all who refused to worship the image to be killed. There's more content on both sides of those dots, but that's the point, that when they said no to worshiping the beast, they were put to death. And you're like, okay, Daniel, last week you told us don't be afraid, don't fear. That's scary. And you're right. I'm not not trying to convince you it's not. And ultimately what it looks like here in this passage is when you finish chapter 13, a bunch of followers of Jesus get slaughtered And all that's left is the beast and his followers. It looks like evil triumphed. But I want you to hear the voices of victory in chapter 14. God sends three angels to the earth, and the first angel proclaims the gospel. Look at God's mercy in the fact that all these people who have rejected him, God sends an angel to proclaim the gospel to them. All that's left on earth is a bunch of people who are following the beast. They're following the unholy trinity. And yet God sends an angel to proclaim the gospel and warn them, judgment's coming. Turn, turn, turn. And then a second angel in verse 8 proclaims that the Babylon, the city of evil, has fallen. And if I'm on the earth and I'm one of these people who've worshipped the beast, I'm like, no, it hasn't. It is triumphing. But remember... We are talking about history, past, happening, and future. Because in the future, in the next few chapters, you're going to see Babylon falling to its misery. So this angel is prophesying about what's about to happen. And then the third angel shows up in verses 9 through 13 and proclaims, escape the wrath of God. Turn, turn, turn. And I believe the implications is almost as if some of them did, because when you get to verse 12 inside of that, we get the same words, just a different chapter and verse from chapter 13. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who have kept his commandments and remained faithful to Jesus. So if you still have that question lingering in your mind, what do I do if I'm faced with death? Or maybe for you, you're like, oh, that never happened to me. That's talking about people in the future. I want to give you this sober reminder that It's hard to read these chapters in Revelation because of that truth. That most of us have never faced that decision of answer the question, do you follow Jesus, yes or no? And the answer on the other side of it is either your life or not. 
that we get this blessing in the book of Revelation, verse 13 of chapter 14, where John says, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. There's seven statements of blessing in the book of Revelation, and there's no mistake that there's seven of them. I want you to go this week, find, find all of them, find, find all seven statements and figure out, compare with your life, your vision of what it looks like to be blessed and put it beside Revelation and think, does, does our world teach this? Do I believe this is what it looks like to be blessed? Because blessing looks like those who die in the Lord from now on, call them blessed. Because many of our brothers and sisters in Jesus around the world have been faced with this decision for a long time. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, we see people face that decision. Do you follow God? Yes or no? Clear choice, but not an easy one. And our clear choice is, is still there right in front of us. Do we follow the lying accuser or the life-giving father? Or the question like this, will you follow the lamb or follow the beast? Because this passage of scripture is, is hard. There's no denying it. But it can either scare you to death or scare you to life. And make no mistake, there is triumph for every follower of Jesus who has died in the Lord because they triumph over that dragon every time they give their life. Because look at it, in verse, chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, how they triumph. They triumphed over him, that dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Read it again. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. It makes me ask myself the question, what do I love more that wants me to keep my life on this earth more than Jesus? I mean, think about it. Believers across history have been faced with this question. Do you follow Jesus? And their answer, and they know it, may cost them their life. They hear Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 39, that says this, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. People all across history have given their life for Jesus' name, suffered in Jesus' name, and have not been shaken. If it comes to it, would you be willing to join them? Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled by the sober reminder of a clear choice yet even not an easy choice. We ask for some concrete in our spine this morning, spiritually speaking, to strengthen us, embolden us, encourage us to live differently in light of these truths, to follow you no matter what it costs us. In Jesus' name, amen.